Uh, if you take out your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 2, uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Last week we looked at uh, Paul's sort of the core principle in chapter 1 uh, where he said, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then we kind of explored four different spheres where that might get fleshed out. First of all, we looked at just our everyday earthly struggles, right? Whether it's an incident down at financial aid or something with your neighbor or whatever it might be, that these are occasions when the struggle comes, when the temptation comes, when the trial or adversity comes. These are opportunities to show the light of the gospel against the dark backdrop of the world without. Uh, the second sphere we looked at, we looked at interpersonal rivalries. Surely we have none of those, amazingly, right? Even within ministry, Paul even indicates, even within ministry, here are some proclaiming the gospel, but with wrong motives. And he gives us the gift of what I call the Christian shrug. If it's a false gospel, that's a problem. If it's a true gospel, praise God, Christ is being preached. So in our interpersonal rivalries, in our embodied life, uh, Paul was dealing with the fact that in his embodied life, he's incarcerated, he's limited. He wants to just go home and be with the Lord, but committed to being, while in the body, doing the Lord's work. And this was something for us too, that we have been given this body. We've been given a particular gender. We are engendered. It's not incidental. We've been placed in this location. We've been given specific spiritual gifts that we are to use in service to the body of Christ. So in our embodied life. And then last of all, in our Christian community, we talked about the distinguishing mark of unity, especially among the people of God as a brilliant light in a dark world. Uh, and now we didn't get too far into that last week because we have this week and we're continuing on in that particular theme. But each of these spheres that we looked at represent basically a realm of opportunity from which to demonstrate the shaping influence of the gospel. The gospel is not just the way into faith. It is the way of faith. It's to have a continual shaping impact upon us, forming and reforming the contours of our very life. Uh, and the result should be a gospel-shaped life. And it should be a beautiful contradiction to the world that doesn't have the gospel. Now, our passage today begins in chapter 2 with the word, therefore. And good Bible readers will take note of this linking word. Uh, we'll recognize that this is not just a standalone section. This is not the start of something new. But this is a continuation of what came before. As the old saying goes, whenever you see a therefore, stop and take notice of what it's there for. Right. The chapter... Uh, separations and verses that you find in your Bible, those are not inspired scripture. Those are editorial helps to kind of see sections and breaks. And actually the chapter two heading there is almost a little bit of a, it almost doesn't help us because this is a clear continuation. Therefore, he begins the passage with, which means what the apostle Paul is doing is kind of a deep dive into the way that the gospel should shape our relationships with one another, particularly within the body of Christ. He's showing that the gospel does not simply affect our vertical relationship with the Lord. Certainly it does that from starters. 
but it also is to have a shaping and conforming influence upon us in our horizontal relationships, especially with the body of Christ, especially other Christians. That's his focal point here in this chapter. And so if you're looking for, Eric, just give me the principle. Just give me the, give me the big point right up front. Here you go. This is what you should be able to repeat over lunch or coffee, maybe even tomorrow if asked. What did pastor talk about today? Here it is. Relate to one another in gospel humility as Jesus demonstrated. Relate to one another with gospel humility as Jesus demonstrated. So first of all, what we're going to do, we're going to trace the Apostle Paul's uh, argument here, and then we'll color it in with uh, some living instruction. So chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and we're going to stop right there. Seems like a good place to halt. Uh, This is classic Pauline writing in a couple of ways here. The first is that these first four verses of chapter 2 are all one long run-on sentence. And that's classic Paul. It would not have passed my English comps, you know, high school English comp teacher's uh, test. There would be some red on that if I had turned that in, I guarantee it. But it's all one long run-on sentence. The second thing that really shows it to be kind of classic Pauline writing is that he begins with what we call the indicatives, and then he moves on to what are called imperatives. And that's classic Paul. So basically what he's doing is, before Paul tells us what to do, he tells us who we are. He reminds us of our groundedness in Christ, and then from that, actions that come out of it. That way, our acts of obedience are not for performance. They're not pretense. They're not fakery. They come out of identity, the very source of of who we are. So Paul really begins by reminding the church of our position in Christ. And the way he does that is with these four if statements. And you kind of heard me emphasize that if as, as I read that here. Now, I'm going to warn you, we're going to do a little bit of geeky Greek here. So some of you love it, some of you hate it. You know, get along. We just all need to get along here. Um, little geeky Greek here. These four statements that begin with this word if, they're what we call first-class conditionals. Uh, there's actually four, a series of four, and I should go on to tell you, I didn't do very well in Greek, so let you be warned, okay? Listener, be warned. But there's actually four sets of conditional. A first-class conditional says... What I'm saying here, we assume to be true, or I'm presenting as true for the sake of argument. A second class conditional basically says, I'm assuming this is false, or presenting it as false for the sake of argument. The third and fourth class are so confusing, I couldn't even repeat it to you, so we'll just leave it at that. But this is what we call a first class conditional, meaning Paul is not speculating or questioning or suspicious of their position in Christ. He's sure of it. He's certain of it. And so he is kind of in a stylistic way affirming their sure position in Christ. And then from that, he is leveraging that certainty for a particular action. And so that brings us to our first point here. Our certain position in Christ, well, it comes with relational imperatives. Um, A number of years ago, when our family was in our 
kind of a season of homeschooling our kids. We did homeschool, halftime homeschool and public school, full-time public school, now doing Christian college. So we've been all over the map on this thing. But when we started out with homeschool, uh, I was looking at some of the lessons that were coming up, and there was one that piqued my interest. It was a lesson on teaching about simple machines. So I quickly called dibs on that one. Like, that's the one I want to do. I don't think I did any others. I don't think any other lessons. You could ask Amy about that. But I did that one. And it was kind of fun to be out in the garage and talk about things like, well, here's friction and torque and force and pulley and inclined plane and a screw and fulcrum and lever. And we were just, it was just fun to be in the garage with the kids working through some of these things. And that memory sort of came to mind when I was going through Paul's message here because what he is doing is with these if statements, he is just building this fulcrum. You could basically translate instead of the if to be since. Since uh, you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since comfort from his love, since common sharing of the Spirit, since tenderness and compassion, because you are in Christ, leverage. <laughs> this is the way you are to act towards one another. This is what your Christian relationships should look like. So this isn't just love God and love neighbor. This is not simply the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do unto you. This is a little bit more like the Godfather, right? You don't, you don't go against the family or something like this. I don't have a good Italian <laughs> accent. So Christian is not merely our position in Christ, but it also clarifies our posture toward our fellow Christians because of what Christ has done for us collectively because the spirit of Christ is in each one of us. So if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, fulcrum, leverage, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And church family, I have a strong urging for you here, if you'll accept this from me. Would you consider this week or in the next two weeks memorizing this passage? Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Would you commit this to memory, to prayer and to meditation, that we would not just read the word, but chew it and meditate on it and bury it in our hearts so that it will animate in our lives? I would encourage you to do that. Memorization is not just for Awana kids. It's for all God's kids. And this passage, I think, is something that will be really helpful to the body of Christ right now. <clears throat> so this brings us to our second point. Our certain position in Christ demands a humble posture toward our fellow Christians. I want you to notice that in verse 2 here, how all of these words kind of center around the concept of unity. Like-minded, same love, one of spirit, one of mind. They're all centered around this concept of unity. And we might say, that's great, beautiful, unity. Lovely. That's what we want. Wouldn't that be glorious? 
The reality of it is, however, unity is hard, right? Can I get an amen to that? Unity is hard. It's very hard. In fact, I'm going to give you a little run through church history just so you can see it a little bit here. Let's start in the little seedy church of Corinth, okay? A wreck. This place was a wreck. And just one of the many things that the Apostle Paul had to confront them on was this kind of tribalism within the church. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some say Apollos. Some of you say, I follow Jesus, right? And he confronted that and said, you guys are creating cults of personality here. And that was his confrontation for these divisions within Corinth. In Ephesus, Paul took them to task because what they were trying to do was blend together Jews, Gentiles, and Greeks, all in one fellowship. A good and glorious thing to do, for that's the body of Christ. But they brought with them preferences. And one of those areas of preferences was specifically in their music, which is why the Apostle Paul tells them to be willing to essentially sing each other's songs, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. And I am of the opinion that each one of these genres corresponded to each one of these people groups. What we tend to do is we like to moralize our preference. I prefer this. It's sanctified. This is the only good way. But in fact, what Paul is saying is, no, the body of Christ is broad, and you need to be willing to get along even in the singing of each other's songs. In his epistle, to, um, or in his epistle the apostle John addressed a wounded church. We went through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John after defectors left and chased the false gospel of the Gnostics. And they were left just hurting and wounded. In the fourth century, Augustine battled Pelagius and the Monarchies about true doctrine. Then we have battles sort of being waged over doctrine and practice. Councils were called, creeds were created. Crusades eventually started to carry all of this out and to sort of impose Christianity on the culture by force the darker moments of Christian history. Corruption emerges in the Catholic Church, taking the scriptures out of the common language, bearing it in Latin, doing masses in Latin, and then allowing for corruption, papal authority abuse, and the selling of indulgences, and basically the evisceration of the gospel. So then we have this testy little thing of a reformation. Praise God for that. And that just brings us to the 1500s. Henceforth, the church now, coming out of that event, classifies itself as Protestant. We protest. We're a group of protesters. This is just church history up to the 1500s. And I'll skip forward and say, it hasn't gotten any easier. In the last few years, a variety of social issues have come up and been thrust upon the church and really all of culture with a speed and a difficulty that has been brutal. And you all have felt it, I know. I'll just run through it. And I'm just trying to lay these out flat. I'm just describing the water here, okay? First issue that comes to mind, the issue of racial justice. We had white on black shootings. Critical race theory gets a foothold and wants to run. Black Lives, Matters, uh, black lives Matter, that movement pushes back. Then we move into gender issues, the legalization of same-sex unions and sort of the LGBTQ 
press, I would say, in culture generally, such that if you say anything critical of it, you have denied sort of the secular creed. Political polarization, progressive Christianity in many different forms, which basically tries to accommodate the church and the scriptures to culture rather than submitting culture to these things. And then we have a pandemic. Debates over masks, mandates, vaccines, the defense of rights, and the debate on how we best show love to our neighbor. It's funny, both services, when you start talking about these things, you can feel the temperature come up in the room. Everybody gets nervous. Where is he going with this? I'm just describing the water. This is what's happened. These are the issues the church is trying to deal with. And at the root of it all, I believe this. The thing that the church is really battling with right now is how does the church respond to culture? How does the church see itself in the world? What is it we are to say and what is it we are to do? I think that's the question that a lot of churches are dealing with internally and that's creating a lot of division, factions, disunity, whatever. But you add a complicating factor to this. It's not even that neat and clean yet. Uh, one of the real problems is that the information that we get is less reliable now than it's maybe ever been, right? And the reason is because most of us, most of our information sources are self-curated, if not intentionally, by the algorithms of our social media feed. Facebook is marketing information. It's giving you what it knows you want. That creates a dynamic within any community, any people group, known as confirmation bias. And we're already prone to that anyways, where we look to reinforce our convictions with whatever information we get, but now we have a digital tool with which to do it, intentionally or unintentionally. The result is everybody's doubling down because they're burrowing further and further into their own little wormhole. And you have yours, and I have mine, and they have theirs. And one of the things it creates is a closed-mindedness and a hostility and a how can you ever think this or believe that? Haven't you been to my wormhole of information? This is what's happening. And so we get more and more sure of my view while you get more and more sure of your view and they get more and more sure of their view until we get to pistols at dawn, right? What's wrong with you? And the American evangelical church has not been immune to this phenomenon. In fact, it might have hit us worse. And the reason why, I think, is because we do live in community or strive to. We come to fellowship and worship together. We go to a small group together. We harvest a caribou or fish or firewood together. We go berry picking. We pick up each other's kids. We try to serve one another. We live in community while this is all happening. So it's been very hard on those who try to preserve community when maybe the rest of the world could just go, you haven't been in my wormhole of information. I'll just cut you off. We're trying to persevere. And so I think these issues and these filters and these rifts have made unity exceptionally hard to build, maintain, and restore. Um, when we were done with our uh, season of homeschooling and our kids went to public school. We were in the uh, Pearl Creek area. I don't, we got any Pearl Creekers here? We got a few, a couple, nice. And right out in the foyer there, um, they used to, I don't know if it's still there, it's been a lot of years since I've been there, they used to have this uh, really cool kaleidoscope sitting there. 
I don't know if it's still there because it sounds like a really good way to get pink eye, right? But they might have removed it by now. But there was a kaleidoscope there. And as I was thinking about how these issues have affected Christian community and unity within it, that kaleidoscope comes to mind. A lot of the same pieces, same features, same people are within this scope of view. But the issues of the last few years have turned that thing over a few revolutions, such that if you look through it now, the way people relate to one another, who their friendships are, and how deep they are, have been shaped by social issues, not by gospel, not by common interests, not by experiences together, but now more by one's narrative based on the self-curated information that they have. I think that is the moment that we're in. It has changed the landscape of churches across the nation, and it's changed the landscape of relationships within each church. And some of you are sitting here going, tell me about it. I know. And it still hurts. So the question I would ask you is, how do we recover from that? What does the gospel have to say about that? What impact does that have on the body of Christ? Are we any different than the world? Or are we just as susceptible to those things? And I think Paul's message here has a lot to offer us about that. And he doesn't tell us specifically what to think. Thankfully, what he tells us is how. How to be. Uh, like the old adage, right? You give a man to fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fly fish, he'll be happy the rest of his life. Right? <laughs> Something like that. Maybe that came through my curated news feed, right? <laughs> Paul doesn't just give us quick trite answers for the issues of the day, he gives us something much bigger, much more valuable, much more transferable. He gives us a principle. He gives us how we are to deal with one another. And by giving us a how, he equips us for an infinite number of what's, okay? And that how could be summarized in the phrase, gospel humility. Gospel humility that it would continue to shape us, shape our hearts, shape our lives, shape our convictions, that it would animate us in the way that we interact with one another. As I said last week, the gospel is not just the ABCs. It's the XYZs of the faith. It's the deep pool of water of the faith. We continue to live in and be shaped by the gospel, which means we don't have to agree on all matters, but we should be agreeable people. We don't have to come to the same answer, but we should have the same attitude, and that is of Jesus Christ and this gospel humility. Now, as we move forward here, the temptation is going to be, this is always the temptation. You come to a service, listen to a sermon online. The temptation is to listen for somebody else. I hope Sister Sally gets this one. She needs it. Brother Bill, that's got your name on it, right? This is the temptation. Listening for you. Hope you get it. Church, listen for you right now. Paul would have us look inward. He would have us assess our own internal motivation, not looking at the motives of another, but looking at the internal movements of our own heart. Do nothing 
out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with others, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This brings us to our third point. Our certain position in Christ demands a humble posture towards our fellow Christians, just as Christ demonstrated. My good friend, um, Dick Kies, he's the former director of the Brief Fellowship in Southboro, uh, Massachusetts, delivered an amazing message on humility years ago, and I'm still gleaning from it and stealing all of his good quotes. <laughs> he said, no one who walks with God is prideful. No one who walks with God is prideful. No one can claim to be a disciple of Jesus while radiating pride. Humility is to be the guiding watchword of our relationships with one another and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason why I think humility is the thing here is because humility produces unity. Unity is a, a byproduct of humility. Humility is how we act upon ourselves. It's what we can do. I can't make unity happen. How I participate in it is I practice humility. Forced unity looks like the Crusades. But humility looks like Jesus. We act upon ourselves. Uh, I, I would tell you that personally, over time, I have come to value and respect humility and love as the two most important virtues. Uh, virtues with an interesting relationship to one another, almost like uh, two sides of the same coin, almost, almost can't take them apart from one another. Um, I, don't, I don't even know how to rank them. They're just so interconnected. But my friend, again, Dick Kies, in this talk on humility, maybe I should have linked that in the notes so you could just go listen to Dick because he got it better than I did, but he called humility a gateway virtue. In other words, you don't get the other virtues without humility. The proud man has closed the gate to picking up the other virtues. Only the humble man is going to accept them and grow in them over time. It's a gateway virtue. Thankfully, we don't have to wrestle down all of these words and the priority of it and all of this and how we get after them because God has given us more than the written word or written words. He has given us the living, living word of Jesus Christ. Amen? We get to see it fleshed out. We get to see it embodied. We get to see it in the same kind of life that you and I live. I ran across, across a quote by uh, Robert Oppenheimer, the nuclear physicist. He said this, the best way to send information is to wrap it up in a person. And that's what God did. So that you and I have the incredible privilege of looking to the person of Jesus Christ in his embodied life and in his humble posture, and we get to imitate it. And we get to be his disciples, not because we all possess a same data set, 
but by, because we possess the same mindset of gospel humility towards one another. There's four spheres I want to work this out in. The first is this. We can look to the example of Christ in his self-emptying. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature with God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This passage is commonly referred to as the kenosis passage because of the Greek word behind this emptied himself or made himself nothing, depending upon your translation. And we have to be careful with this because I don't know how many heresies have started here thinking that somehow Jesus divested himself of his deity. He did not. He maintains his deity. There are those who would say that in the emptying of himself, he laid aside his deity, his life therefore is only exemplary. His death on the cross didn't do anything. It was just an example of ultimate sacrifice. This is some of the teaching that someone like Richard uh, Rohr promotes. So if you're reading him, toss that away. Because that's a false gospel. But instead, the better way to understand this is that he laid aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. Which means while he is deity and he possesses all these powers and rights, he doesn't simply use them for himself in the occasion as he wants. Rather, he lays aside the independent use and submits himself to the Father's will, which looks like this. He didn't turn bread or he didn't turn rocks into bread when tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. He didn't perform miracles to ensure that he would be released from Pilate when Pilate had him arrested. He didn't, when he was on the cross, choose to rescue himself by calling legions of angels, right? By the way, I always think that's funny. He didn't need a legion of angels. He could just say, you know, I'm pretty much done hanging here. Pow, 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 you know, that's it. But he doesn't do that either. In fact, the hymn that we sang earlier says it was his love, it was our sin that held him there. He laid aside the independent use of his divine prerogatives. Instead, he spent them on us. He spent them on us. And so our imitation of Jesus, again, I think this is going to look like not thinking less of ourselves or thinking lowly of ourselves, but as C.S. Lewis says, thinking of ourselves less. Um, I've noted a little book in your notes there written by Tim Keller. I quote Tozer all the time. Tim Keller quotes C.S. Lewis all the time. And, and this is a quote from that little, it's about a 60-page book, And I want to read this to you. This is excellent. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility. The very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us that they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to the thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself 
In fact, I stopped thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. There's a good picture of gospel humility in relationships. Secondly, we see, so we see this in his self-emptying, something we can imitate. We see in Christ's service to others. And we all know, of course, the supreme act of Christ's service is the cross. Though he is God, though he is sinless, though his executioners are ironically sinners and the very ones that he came to save, and yet he allows himself to go to a criminal's cross, stripped naked, hung in shame, so that everybody can see, so that we might be saved. He has simultaneously the power to instantly end all of this pain and injustice and expose the shame of those who are perpetrating it. Smash them like bugs, but he stays. I was convicted a couple years ago. I was reading a book by Tish Warren. The reason I bring this up is because you and I aren't going to have a cross. Right? It's not going to look like this momentary heroic act of service. What we have are a bunch of little moments where we get to act in humility and service to others. This book by Tish Warren, it was great. She has this quote. She says, everybody wants a revolution. Nobody wants to do the dishes. Uh, that's good. I was particularly convicted because I hate to do the dishes. I really, I don't like them. In fact, last year, towards the end of the school year, uh, we were frenetic, trying to keep everything going. And um, I, I hate doing dishes. And I kind of blurted out one evening in, in uh, mild irritation. I said, do you know what? I would make all the dinners if I didn't have to do any dishes. Amy says, sold. <laughs> she called me out, as she's prone to do. Actually, so I'll say, I did it. I actually kind of liked it. It was fun. For, it was kind of therapeutic for me to make something tangible and serve my family. So I did actually like it. That has gone by the wayside for the summer now that she's not working in the summer and we're going to have to renegotiate what the school year looks like. I don't know yet. <laughs> Jesus does much more than doing the dishes. In fact, when he walked the earth, he did the most difficult and the most lowly job. He washed the disciples' feet, Right? When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, he returned to the place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thirdly here, in his incarnation itself, this might sound like a funny one. How do I imitate the incarnation? Good news, you've already got it. You're, you've been given a body. You're in it. You're walking in it. In short, use your bodily life in the service of others. Your body. Learn to serve. I think there's something powerful about serving in physical, tangible ways as we labor with someone or for someone. And it's over time and we feel it. I'm expending some energy here. I'm doing something lowly. And as we do it and we do it over time, we are cultivating a love and affection for our brother or sister in Christ. Use your body, an incarnation of who you are to serve the body of Christ. And then finally here, 
in his voluntary sacrifice. If you really want to grow in love for someone or something, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, sacrifice something for them. Give up something for them. I'll be specific. Be generous, even sacrificial, in your regularly giving to your church. The church depends upon the giving of its body. We have to pay our bills around here, for sure. We have to support the local ministries that we're tied to. We have to support our missionaries abroad. One of the ways that you create an affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ and your church family is to sacrifice for it. And finances are one of the ways we do that. I'll tell you this. I came across a fascinating statistic or or statement a while back that said that the first thing that goes before somebody leaves the church is their giving. The giving goes first. Jesus was right. Where our treasure is, there our heart will be. You have a way to allow your heart to follow your treasure. Be generous with your time. Sign up for something Sign up for a way to serve and then do the next thing, which is equally important. Show up. Show up for that service and perform it. If this is your church, serve it. Serve one another. Sign up in the nursery to watch babies so a very tired mom can come and sit in service for a while, undistracted and draw near to the Lord. Put your time in your worship rehearsal so you can lead the body of Christ and musical excellence, as you guys did this morning. Come mow the lawn, paint a wall, teach a Sunday school class, facilitate a small group, serve, look for a way to serve. It's so easy just to believe it's done by other people. If you want to be a part of the body of Christ and act in gospel humility, learn to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. Service doesn't always look like a cross. It oftentimes looks like volunteerism. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the written word. We really are, that we can come back to it again and again rereading it, rereading it, and having the Holy Spirit illuminated and press it into our hearts. But we are also so grateful that we have the living word of Jesus Christ who put this in practice. So as we look to promote unity within the body of Christ through gospel humility, we have an example in living color, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. May we truly imitate him and experience the unity within our fellowship. We pray for that in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.